LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Richard Smoley. Modern scientific materialism dictates that the world is meaningless and devoid of purpose and that our lives are merely a series of random, pointless and often tragic events culminating in the annihilation of our entire existence. Although many people intuitively reject this relatively recent view of reality, our dominant cultural and social paradigms denigrate alternative cosmologies as superstitious, anti-scientific mumbo-jumbo. But as the social, political and economic systems upon which modern life depends continue to suffer increasing stress, existential angst and, ironically enough, cutting-edge science are coming together to question the underlying assumptions of our age. Did the Big Bang actually happen? What if the universe has neither beginning nor end? What if time, space and matter are not the basic building blocks of reality? Many esoteric and spiritual traditions speak of something absolute and eternal, the everlasting source of all that is. Some might call it God, while others point to a fundamental field of consciousness. Human beings are the only creatures who seem to sense that something is wrong with this world. But is something wrong with us? Abandoning that which is holding us back may help us find a way forward. Hello and welcome, Richard, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Richard, uh, today we're going to be talking, having a little chat um, inspired by your latest book, which has just come out. That's entitled Introduction to the Occult, uh, your guide to subjects ranging from Atlantis, magic and UFOs to witchcraft, psychedelics and thought power. Uh, Before we dive into that, for listeners who don't know, if you could just tell them a little bit about your background and work in general. Well, I've been studying uh, esoteric occult traditions for something close to 50 years now. Um, I worked as editor of a magazine called Gnosis, uh, which was published in the 80s and 90s. Its subtitle was A Journal of the Western Inner Traditions, which covered these things. Currently, I edit Quest, which is the Journal of the Theosophical Society in America. I also do lectures and uh, courses for them. Uh, And I also write and publish books of my own, of which Introduction to the Occult is the latest. By the way, this book is actually a transcript of some talks I gave uh, and under the title, The Truth About Magic. And these are available on Vimeo. So if you want to see me on audio, video, it's essentially the same material uh, as in the book. Uh, Please go to Vimeo and uh, check those out. Now, as mentioned in the the subtitle to your book, I mean, there's a lot of ground that you cover here, a lot of things that appear to be 
somewhat disparate, but actually are all closely related. And it really is an introduction, actually. I think there's a, these, these, the talks which you've turned into this book are ideally aimed, I would say, at, you know, people that are new to some of these subjects. Now, many of um, our listeners today will have quite an in-depth knowledge of one or more of these topics. Uh, so we're going to just take the, you know, the subject in the book as a jumping off point of sorts. One of the things I mentioned these things being related, even if they don't at first appear to be, and it's summed up in, um, an insight that you include early on in the book, which is something that when I began studying these subjects back in the 1980s, uh, it was inspired by the intuition that something is eternal. I don't know if that's a direct quote from your book, but essentially that was the insight. So my study was inspired by this intuition, but also my study confirmed this intuition that something was eternal. And that really is, I think, a, a, it's something that you could say the entire uh, subject matter, the breadth of things that, uh, that I cover on the show has got that at back of it somewhere, if you see what I mean. So it's for me, it's really is a central insight and it's just very very important true true uh, by the way it uh, for your listeners who are knowledgeable about these subjects they might consider even if they know quite a bit about them they might consider looking at my book as an introduction to point people to who may be interested or curious or have some want to have some idea of uh, what they're doing uh, i think it would be good for that so yes i mean there is this basic idea that there is something that's eternal and the insight that the esoteric traditions uh, add is that this cannot be anything in the visible or material world because nothing there is uh, permanent. And this is the central insight of Buddhism, which is impermanence. So everything is changing. There's no object that you can point to that will last forever. And, uh, uh, scientists have even assigned uh, lifespans to the universe as we know it. Uh, so there must be something other than that that uh, is eternal. And I would say you could identify this with God a word which some people are more comfortable with than others. But uh, when my sons were young, they asked me uh, what God was. And I said, uh, God is where everything comes from. God is the source of everything. So that immediately rules out any object in the physical world, no matter how big or majestic. And it points us back into something um, that is not visible. Now, the other great insight of these traditions, and they phrase it in various ways, is that this, which is eternal, is not only connected with you, but in a very deep sense, is you. And the Hindus express this truth uh, with her aphorism, Atman is Brahman. And in this case, Atman is the supreme self, your supreme self. And Brahman is the creator, the source of everything. Not all Hindus would hold to that, but it is a common expressed, uh, commonly expressed aphorism in Hinduism. Uh, 
So this means that the further you go into yourself, the closer you, shall we say, come to the absolute. And that's why, you know, in the gospel that says, you know, don't go around looking for the kingdom of heaven here and there because the kingdom of heaven is within you. And then you come to this realization, uh, which can be startling, is that this kingdom of heaven not only is you, but it is what's conscious in you. It's looking out at the world through your mind and body and emotions and so on, as if through a telescope. And as Francis of Assisi said, what you are looking for is what is looking. So the, the esoteric path is about connecting to this self that we can never lose, but we can lose awareness of by simply identifying with a lot of things in between. And these include the mind, the body, and the emotions. So to a certain extent, this path of going to something eternal is a matter, at least initially, of detaching oneself from all those things you think you are. I'm reminded of a couple of expressions that sort of try to encapsulate this insight. Uh, you know, the mystery of consciousness. And, and as you mentioned, you know, what we're looking for is, is what is looking. Um, basically, that we're the universe becoming aware of itself. I always like that. That's what the process that we're undergoing and struggling to comprehend. Um, another one using the term, to use the term God, was basically that um, this is the same. If you substitute universe for God, then we're kind of like, we're the creator becoming aware of itself. Um, and that the forgetting of that knowledge was somehow part of, um, you know, it has an evolutionary purpose. I'm not necessarily saying that, I don't mean that in Darwinian terms, but some kind of, sort of kind of teleology to it that this, this, this amnesia was, was part of a process and that what we're experiencing, you know, has a, a you know, say a natural teleology to it. Uh, there's some kind of meaning or purpose behind the process. So, and of course, you know, things come and go, as you say, in the material world. And the question which philosophers and theologians and scientists uh, have been grappling with for as long as we can tell is where do these things come from? Where, if anywhere, do they go? What's behind it? Does it mean because we don't we know? And even all of these disciplines would say, well, in my opinion, anyway, would have to come to the conclusion that we cannot get something from nothing. Uh, this is the issue I have with uh, Big Bang theory. You know, life cannot come from non-life. It cannot come from something that is dead. So, you know, what is the origin of the material universe that we see when we witness with our senses? What, what you know, what then is behind that? Well, the way I look at it, and I talk about this most in the book of mine called The Dice Game of Shiva, How Consciousness Creates the Universe, is in terms of self and other. Consciousness and many people are saying these days that the, uh, the basis of all reality is consciousness, which I agree with. Uh, the primordial distinction is between self and other. Uh, that is to say, the, the minute that you posit something out there, no matter how vaguely, uh, you are aware of it. If you're, if you are, shall we say, united with it, uh, you're not aware of it. 
Now, the, the most obvious analogy is deep sleep. You're not aware. You're not aware uh, of a world out there. Uh, there's no, you're not distinguishing self from other to some degree. So the world at that point doesn't exist. And I would say that this primordial self and other distinction uh, is symbolized in many traditions by, for example, the yin and the yang, uh, the uh, Purush and Prakriti of, of some Hindu philosophical schools. And all of manifestation comes from this constant interplay. Now, it comes. this comes from something called the absolute, which is beyond all of this. So in a sense, this distinction of self and other is kind of false from the point of view of the absolute. From the point of view of relative reality, it is true. And it kind of fluctuates between those two poles, shall we say, true and not true. And that leads to uh, what I would say is what we call vibration. And again, many esoteric teachings say that vibration is um, the root of all things. That point you made there about if you're united with something, you're not aware of it, that also echoes something I was thinking when I mentioned, you know, the creator becoming aware of itself, the universe becoming aware of itself, That and it kind of explains or could can potentially point us to um, an explanation or reasoning behind the way that the reality that we perceive as the way it is. And, and you know, for example, the, the existence of, of um, evil, which um, I've, I've done several shows discussing that issue, and I, I think it's um, folly to dismiss the idea of evil uh, as a real force. But essentially, that if there wasn't the separation, if there wasn't the amnesia, if there wasn't the one thing and the other thing, then there would be no room for growth. Essentially, everything would be God or of God, and you know that a sort of a a unity that we may that may be something that. That that uh, that reality, that creation. I mean, what? How do you even find a word for it? Something that is, it, we're moving towards. We see what I mean. So there may have been some kind of. Now this is maybe where ideas about the Big Bang have come from. There may have been um, a primordial separation uh, from from a unity, and then uh, a gradual return. A bit like sort of you know the the idea. If we talk about cosmology in terms of the Big Bang, the idea that everything's splitting apart and separating. And then everything coming back together again at some point, um, and this is also reflected in some esoteric traditions. The idea of like a breath, breathe out, breathe in, and the whole cycle of creation as being uh, very much like that. So, but my, I think my fundamental insight was the idea that that again that this idea of separation, sort of a sense of it like loss and amnesia, and all of those things that that we seem to sense, you know, in, in their deepest deep darkest moments and in, in, in our souls whatever you want to put it that there is there's a reason for this that something's occurring here but of course and again it reflected in many ancient spiritual and esoteric traditions but in recent times uh very much dismissed and lost you know in the uh in the era of of scientific materialism which again is still in its own way questing for the same answers but just approaching it from, from you know quite differently 
Yeah. I mean, I don't put a lot of stock in the Big Bang Theory, largely because we've seen so many times uh, how, how many times science has changed its mind about this, uh, its theories. I'm not saying the Big Bang Theory is false, uh, but it wouldn't be surprising to me if, you know, in fact, I saw something. Uh, it was uh, some physicist at Duke University said, well, through some string of equations that there really could not be such a thing as a singularity, whatever that means in physics. And since the Big Bang is is uh, a singularity, there therefore could not have been a Big Bang. Now, I do not have the scientific uh, capacity to judge that or not, but it does seem possible that uh, you could, uh, you know, someone could do a string of equations and find wow, the, ba- the Big Bang just really didn't and couldn't have happened. So I, I without rejecting the theory, I know exactly how, and, and so, so how uh, science really can never give full allegiance to any particular theory and should not. So that's my take on the Big Bang as such. It, it may or may not have been occurred, occurred in the sense, I mean, uh, we have, uh, I wonder sometimes, like, well, okay, the Big Bang, say, what is it? I don't know. Say it happened, what, 13.8 billion years ago. What? Well, wait a minute. What was a year at that point? The year is defined by the time it takes for the Earth to go around the sun. Uh, but there was no Earth and there was no sun. There was nothing even of that sort. So what, what exactly do you mean when you're saying 13.8 billion years ago? How are you measuring them? Uh, I'm sure there are answers for that, but there also seem to be a lot of, uh, you know, rather large unquestioned assumptions in the scientific worldview that uh, lead me to, you know, kind of bracket it all. Yeah, I think it's probably to measurement is probably to do with um, being able to look back in time, you know, with various scientific instruments. Uh, you know, we can plot with uh, these days with um, computer programs what various um, heavenly bodies were doing, you know, during over the last millions and millions of years based on current observations as to where are we, you know, we can infer these certain things. So I think a lot of it is uh, based on number crunching, you know, what, what, they, what we have learned in the scientific area and then just simply mapping that backwards in time. But it always struck me um, that the Big Bang uh, is basically, you can substitute that for let there be light. You know, one instantaneous, yeah. as you say, singularity. And you know, people say, "Oh, what's ridiculous?" You know, what are you talking about? There was some kind of creator god that that you know made the world. You know, and it just you know, in an instant, just brought it into existence. It, was, it sounds a lot like the Big Bang to me. I think one thing we struggle with, you know, our conceptions of of time in particular, but also space. But time is a way of making sense of um, our five sense experience of of life, the universe, and everything is that there, things start and they end. And we do, you know, as I mentioned earlier, things come into existence, they pass out of existence. Uh, we're the perfect examples. You know, we're born, we live, we die and decay. And we're, you know, apparently that that is it, certainly in terms of um, scientific materialism. So the idea that there might always have been something, you know, that something is truly eternal, that there is no beginning and no end, that anything could exist on that basis 
Um, I just don't think we can get our heads around it because, again, it is spoken of in spiritual and esoteric traditions, you know, uh, whether it's something that's cyclical or just that there is no start and end as we think of it. It's something that our, we can't get our tiny minds around because it just seems to fly in the face of, um, of, of reality. But of course, what we take to be reality is just the surface of things and, you know, all the, um, topics that, um, you touch upon in the book in all, each in their own way, you know, upends that, um, the idea that the five sense reality is all that there is and seems to confirm that what we're seeing is just a surface appearance of things. Yeah. I think with all of this, I think we, we at least have to start with the assumption that we're never going to really understand the whole picture so that any conclusions we come to, um, you know, have to be regarded with great humility. Uh, on the other hand, it does kind of stimulate the mind uh, to think about that. And many people, I think maybe even the basic human um, feeling is that somehow part of our purpose is at least to at least try to think about things and contemplate them, um, even if uh, our conclusions may always be very tentative. Yes, I've often heard it said that uh, who are we to think when it comes to contemplating life, the universe, and everything. You know, who are we to think that we, we, we've got minds that will be able to grasp any of this? You know, why do we think that this particular biological configuration represented in the human being is somehow equipped to to understand the cosmos? But at the same time, it's, it's one of the most fundamental things, I think, driving us. And I think it's the source also, the, the sort of denying that or setting that aside as perhaps just as a religious pursuit, even though, as I said, religion, science, philosophy, they're all engaged essentially in the same quest. But setting that aside in, in terms of, we've mentioned materialism again, and think of it this time in terms of a lifestyle, you know, a way of living, um, is the source of so much of our, our problems, you know, personal, um, societal problems, you know, political, economic, all sorts of, you know, the predicaments that we find ourselves in um, as a species are coming from this um, from this bedrock of scientific materialism that absolutely denies meaning and purpose in existence in any shape, form, or size. And that leaves us um, with very little, really, if you accept that as how things are. It leaves us with, again, you know, you're born, you live, you die. Let's not talk too much about that latter one. <laughs> Let's see, you know, that's the last great taboo. And so all you can do is get what you can get, you know, and just try and get ahead and have some fun while you're here for a few decades and sooner or later, you know, that, that just, that runs out, you know, whether it's on your deathbed or whether it's at some point, hopefully before that, it's revealed as, as, as bankrupt. Yeah. I, the thing is that there's something deeply instilled in human nature that views the world as something problematic. I mean, man is the animal, uh, the only animal that uh, thinks something is wrong and thinks something is wrong in kind of a, a background way, you know, your dog will think something is wrong if he's frightened or hungry or bored. But without those things, your dog is perfectly happy. He doesn't have, you know, any existential issues with the world that we can see. Whereas with us, there's always something kind of nagging at us about it. And, you know, why is the way the world is? And um, the answers that people come up with are, are very rarely satisfying. And scientific materialism is, is certainly unsatisfying. 
And, um, you know, I think it's starting to question its own premises, but uh, I don't know that this has really trickled down uh, to the intellectual world, much less the mass public. Uh, I mean, the mass public uh, revolts against this materialistic meaninglessness and realizes that it's um, the result of only a really partial picture. Uh, so they either um, lose hope or go back to some you know, fairly primitive form of religion like fundamentalism or get caught up in consumerism. You know, none of those are really terribly satisfactory solutions. No, I think also fundamentalism is um, a hallmark, I think, of a religion, the death throes of a religion. That's just, you know, speaking as someone not traditionally religious, that's how it seems to me. You know, there's a sort of a life cycle of a any given religion. We're talking about now, thinking, of course, of the the Abrahamic religions that have dominated the world for centuries and, and even millennia in some cases. But as you say, it's sort of, um, I think it was an instinctive backlash against this, you know, the, the, the tenets of scientific materialism in terms of uh, cosmology and a worldview and, and potential meaning and purpose in life. But, you know, when the, the, the dominant societal scientific, you know, paradigm is the way that it is, then where does someone turn? Um, you know, because again, people have been rejecting uh, either going hardcore fundamentalist with the religious uh, worldview or, or increasingly rejecting it. You know, I've got um, in, in my sort of, with my, one of my other work hats on, you know, I've got a very regular day-to-day experience <clears throat> with religious institutions and um, yeah, they're just emptying out at a rate of knots. But for people to go where and I, I think that you're right that the scientific materialist paradigm is being called more and more into question but there still seems to be um this tendency to couch you know sort of alternatives as in vaguely religious terms but you know people are worried about you know the idea for example of consciousness being fundamental uh we take the the, the worldview the cosmology of idealism you know which sees mind as the ontological primitive that it's you're sort of letting God in by the back door because when you start having those conversations, those ideas, it starts to lead back to that there being of there being some kind of you know non-material fundamental reality source of all that there is, and it starts to sound like a lot of religious and spiritual traditions. And I think there's obviously a very clear reason for that, but obviously you can understand the resistance to to that. People start getting, and I know even friends of mine, you know, people I have long meaningful conversations with, they they bristle when you start to um, discuss uh, you know, subjects of consciousness, uh, the fundamental nature of it potentially, and a cosmology like a- idealism. You can see them tensing up because, hey, this is starting to sound a bit religious to me. Yeah, well, I mean, the failure of Christianity has been um, manifold and, you know, basically all forms of Christianity are shall we say, rather bankrupt, um, you know, I, I, in terms of American Catholics, one, one has the impression that most American Catholics are totally well, uh, just go to mass and uh, vote against abortion and you'll be okay. Um, the liberal mainstream Protestant churches, the theologians themselves, no longer sure what they believe. They have... Uh, you know, the, they take the historical critical method was sort of taken apart 
the, the origins of Christianity and Judaism as well, uh, enough apart to uh, ask people what they're left with. And so you, you know, I mean, I like mainstream Protestant ministers um, are furtive about it, but you know, they, you know, they have bigger issues with faith than, for example, I have. Um, so, you know, they, nobody is really able to go to them for answers or if they, they go for answers, um, they're not going to get one except for the most vague kind. And I mean, this leads back to the subject of my book, which is people do have occult, paranormal, supernatural experiences. And they're very, very afraid to talk about it because they have every reason to believe that they'll be laughed at and laughed at most harshly by their loved ones, usually. Um, they have no place to go uh, to talk about it. They can go, you know, they, they may well go to a priest or minister, but the answer they're going to get is going to be pretty vague uh, in almost all circumstances. So, I mean, you have a religion that can't even deal with the supernatural. So, uh, you know, nobody's going to go there. Those churches are empty. Um, the fundamentalists have an answer they're supposed to believe in. So that gives them maybe somewhat more super superficial appeal. But, you know, Christianity has really failed uh, people enormously in this ground because it, it's either become kind of basically a, 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 a collection of true maxims, but uh, maxims that don't necessarily answer a lot of the questions we have, or it devolves into political or social issues. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at LegalizeFreedom.com. LegalizeFreedom.com